Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please check out my new course, The Bronze Age, at avid.fm ancient. That's avid.fm ancient. There's discount pricing, 100% satisfaction guarantee, all that good stuff. So if you're looking for a way to support the show, this is a great way to do it. Thanks again for listening. Hattusis has an enormous footprint covering nearly two square kilometers and was once surrounded by a circuit of walls raised by Supaluliuma I. The lower city featured elaborate gateways with statues of warriors, lions, and sphinxes, while the upper city was dominated by the Great Fortress with palaces, temples, and administrative buildings. I was lucky enough to visit the site back in 2018, and the scale of the place is still impressive, though it's pretty hard to picture it back in its glory days. Those glory days could reasonably be set in the late 13th century BC under the Hittite king Tutaliah IV. Not that he was the most famous or accomplished or powerful king, though he was certainly no slouch on any of those fronts. It just turned out that Tutalaya had the time, treasure, and excuse to refurbish the Hittite capital. The excuse part was pretty clear-cut. According to historian Trevor Bryce, archaeological evidence indicates the destruction of parts of Hattusas, particularly the walls and temple quarter, during Tutalaya's reign. It's unknown how it may have happened, the usual culprits being accident, invasion, or civil unrest. Maybe one of those dynastic threats he always feared became a harsh reality. Whichever it was, Tutalaya weathered the storm, then set his sights on a little extreme makeover Hittite edition. According to Bryce, Tutalaya more than doubled the size of the upper city including an extensive temple construction program. Equally monumental were Tutalaya's efforts a few miles away at the Hittite sanctuary of Yazelikaya. When I visited there, 
Also in 2018, I was clutching a wonderful article by Carol Rodato of Following Hadrian fame, which covers the side in pretty amazing detail. I'll read you a few choice excerpts. The sanctuary consisted of a temple-like building and two open-air chambers cut into the bedrock, with the chambers holding 83 images. The larger chamber is 30 meters long and decorated with reliefs running horizontally. The deities are aligned in two rows, perhaps in procession, with male figures on the left wall and female figures on the right. The name of each deity is given in Luwian hieroglyphs. These two rows are directed toward the main scene in the middle, where the storm god Teshub and the sun goddess Hepat meet. The smaller chamber features a line of gods of the underworld. On the opposite wall is a representation of Nergal, the god of war and destruction. Another relief depicts the god Sharuma, son of the thunder god Teshub, embracing Tutaliah IV. The god has his left arm over the king's shoulders while holding the king's right wrist. I've posted my pictures from 2018 up on the blog and Facebook sites. These renovations and upgrades likely took place sometime during the 1220s or 1210s BC. Another notable event from that time was the death of Tutaliah's mother, Queen Puduhepa. It was largely due to his mother's efforts, along with those of his father, Hattusili, that Tutaliah still governed a prosperous kingdom. And it's a testament to Puduhepa's outsized influence that she's the first and only Hittite queen to appear in royal reliefs. Her loss must have been keenly felt, not only by her son, but by the powerful figures she'd known for decades, including Ramesses II. In her latter years, the pharaoh had written to tell the great queen Puduhepa, Here I am, your brother. I saw the letter my sister sent me, and I have heard the beautiful writings of my sister. Egyptian aid had grown more vital in the face of a Hittite grain shortage. According to historian Mark van de Meerup, some scholars have suggested that a famine struck the region. But the unstable agricultural base of Anatolia, with its many poor harvests, may explain the isolated references better than a sustained famine. According to Bryce, a contributing factor may have been substantial redeployment of Hittite manpower from agricultural to military activity. Either way, the chief sources of grain appear to have been Egypt and Canaan, whence the grain was transported to Ugarit and from there to the port of Ura on the coast of Tarhuntasa. Sometime late in Tutaliah's reign, these grain shipments came under threat. And the source, or at least the base, of the threat was the island kingdom of Alashaya, modern Cyprus. In the late Bronze Age, the island was mainly known as the primary source of Near Eastern copper, the origin of the name Cyprus. The kingdom had grown wealthy by trading the mineral for ivory, silver, and gold. 
Egypt was one of its main trading partners, and letters from the pharaoh called the king of Alashiah brother, the term used for regional equals. Given the relationship between Egypt and Alashiah, and between Egypt and Hatti, it's hard to understand why the Alashians would hamper seaborne trade. It's far more likely that the real bad actors were Eastern Mediterranean pirates, who may have used the island as an occasional base. Whether the king of Alashia turned a blind eye in exchange for a cut, or was simply unable to dislodge the pirates, the end result was the same. The grain wasn't reaching Tarhuntasa, leaving Anatolia and Tutelaya's regime under increasing domestic pressure. It's in this context that Tutelaya is recorded as conquering Alashia. According to later Hittite records, Tutelaya seized the king of Alashia with his wives and his children. All the goods, including silver and gold, and all the captured people, I removed and brought home to Hattusas. I enslaved the country of Alashia and made it tributary. Again, given the regional relationships, it's unclear whether Tudeliad cleared the move with his brother-in-law, Ramesses II. But he also may have launched the attack at a time of Egyptian distraction. In 1213 BC, the Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses II passed away at the absolutely unheard-of age of 91 years old, after ruling for 66 years. Having literally outlived a dozen sons, Ramesses was succeeded by his thirteenth and eldest, the pharaoh Merneptah. Now, Merneptah was no spring chicken. It's estimated that he was around seventy himself, and had previously served as overseer of the army before being declared crown prince. And, though it took a few years, the new pharaoh's first major crisis was also related to piracy. In 1208, Merneptah got word of an amphibious assault on the territories of western Egypt. The land-based forces were mainly Libyans, while those on ships hailed from Ekwesh, Teresh, Luka, Sheridan, Shekelesh, northerners coming from all lands. The Luka who hailed from southwest Anatolia, already had an established track record of raiding towns in Cyprus. The Ekwesh were likely the Ahiawans. It's also been proposed that the Sheridan, who'd fought with Ramesses II at the Battle of Kadesh, may have hailed from Sardinia. The Teresh and Shekelesh, going by their names, may have included the Sheridan's neighbors from Etruria and Sicily. Merneptah records that many invaders brought along their wives and children, resembling migrants or refugees more than raiders or conquering armies. He also records his ultimate victory, killing 6,000 enemy soldiers and taking 9,000 prisoners. It was a significant triumph, and would end up forestalling a similar onslaught for nearly a generation. But similar to the Alashia incident, 
These were the early signs of a swelling tide that would soon engulf the whole region. In 1209 BC, shortly before Merneptah's victory, the Hittite king Tudalaya died and was succeeded by his son, Arnuwanda III, which, considering the last Arnuwanda had only ruled for a few years, was kind of tempting fate. We know virtually nothing about Arnuwanda, except that he took power at a time of growing famine and lacked universal support. It's unknown whether his unpopularity was something personal or harkened back to his family's original sin, Hattusili's overthrow of Uriteshep. At roughly the same time, another important transition took place. King Eniteshub of Carchemish died and was succeeded by his son, Talmiteshub. Through their predecessors, Sahurunuwash and Piasili, both father and son were direct descendants of Supaluliuma I, as was the deposed king, Uriteshub, as was King Karunta of Tarhuntasa, as was the new great king, Arnuwanda III of Hadi. And these were only the most prominent figures. As Bryce suggests, the disturbances that began to erupt in Hattie may have involved unresolved questions over which branch of the royal family had legitimate claims to the throne. They also almost certainly involved grain. Bryce notes that the pharaoh Merneptah, in his Karnak inscription recording his victory over the Libyans, referred to a shipment of grain which he had sent to keep alive the land of Hattie. Only a year or two after taking power, just like his namesake, the great king Arnuwanda III passed away, and whatever was left of Hittite stability followed him into his tomb. He was succeeded by his younger brother, who sought to evoke a happier time by taking the throne name of Supaluliuma II. But there was no denying the grim reality. The people of Hattie were slowly starving to death. To his credit, Supaluliuma II established his priorities right off the bat, and top of the list was securing Egyptian grain. At some point after his father, Tutaliad, captured the island, Alishayad managed to break free. And whether the current issue was pirates, Alishayans, or both, the relief ships were still being hijacked. Supaliliuma went south to the port of Ugarit and engaged the support of its king, either Nikmadu III or Amarapi, in preparing an invasion fleet. The Alashians apparently sailed out against him, and the two forces clashed off the Syrian coast. When the last ship sank beneath the waves, Supaliliumad emerged victorious. And though it's only a footnote, it's a footnote you should put in all caps, because it just happens to be the first recorded naval battle in all of human history. Though Supaliliuma had re-established control of the island, it was only a temporary fix, and he soon felt compelled to return up north and keep an eye on the capital. 
which is where he learned a short time later of the return of Uri Teshub. At the turn of the century, Uri Teshub, a.k.a. Mursili III, was probably somewhere in his 80s, but he'd never given up on his quest to regain the Hittite throne. Decades earlier, almost immediately after being exiled to Syria, he'd shot off letters to the king of Babylon, then to the king of Assyria, trying to gather foreign support for a war against Hattusili. It was only after these attempts had failed that he'd fled to the court of Ramesses II, and only much later that he'd managed to escape and make his way back to Hatti. During the parallel reigns of his brother and foster brother, King Karunta of Tarhuntasa and the great King Tutalaya of Hatti, there's no record of Uri Teshub taking any military action unless he was behind the partial burning of Hattusis that we talked about earlier. But Tutelaya's passing and the ascension to the throne of his sons, Arnawanda, then Subaluliuma, coincided with another significant transition, the death of King Karunta of Tarhuntasa. Though we don't know the exact circumstances, Karunta's successor to the throne of Tarhuntasa was his brother, the aged Uri Teshub, who once again took up his previous throne name of the great King Mursili III. Mursili wasted zero time in staking a powerful claim. Either through force, diplomacy, or a mixture of both, he quickly managed to gain control of the Hittite territories of Wayanawanda, Tamina, Masa, Luka, and Daikuna, all located in southwestern Anatolia. To the new great king, Supaluliuma II, this was an absolutely staggering challenge. And it was likely met with enormous relief when, a short time later, word arrived that Uri Teshub died. But any relief was incredibly short-lived, because his rebellion was instantly taken up by his son, who announced himself to be the great king Hartapu. Now, Hittite great kings are like highlanders. There really can be only one. And the forces of Hartapu and Supaluliuma soon began clashing in the Hittite lower land, between Tarhuntasa and Hatti. In two inscriptions, Hartapu claimed significant victories against Supaluliuma's forces. Bryce suggests that the inscriptions represent not so much boundary markers, but rather stages in Hartapu's progress toward his ultimate goal. The most northerly inscription, found at Barunkaya, may indicate just how close his forces came to penetrating the southern boundary of his homeland. But it was apparently not meant to be. In a later inscription at Hattusas, Supaluliuma recorded his reconquest of the Hittite lands annexed by Tarhuntasa, as well as of Tarhuntasa itself. We have no details on how things ended, in particular whether or not he killed Hartapu or ejected him from his throne. Regardless, the event marks a major milestone, 
Because Supaluliuma's inscription at Hattusas marks the last known historical record of the Hittite Empire. In terms of stability and continuity, Egypt wasn't doing that much better. The names of its pharaohs flowed like water. Merneptah, Amen Messes, Seti II, Siptah, Tusret, and Setnakte, all holding the throne within a few short decades of the death of Ramesses II. The musical chairs finally ended when Ramesses III ascended the throne in 1186 BC. Despite his name, his blood connection to Ramesses II was about as close as yours or mine. But his military skill and 30-year reign gave Egypt a fighting chance. By the time Ramesses III took power, the storm clouds rolling into the region were clear for all to see. And really, my general takeaway after doing all these series is that Near Eastern empires forged by conquest typically only last a few centuries. You don't really need to formulate complex theories about some perfect storm of adverse elements. The empires were often inherently brittle, and a forceful nudge at a critical time could start the dominoes falling. Among the first empires to fall was Ahiawa, or Achaea, otherwise known as the Empire of the Mycenaean Greeks. For centuries, the Mycenaeans had been the dominant power on the Greek mainland, Crete, the Aegean Islands, and a strip of coastal Anatolia. But by the early 12th century BC, Mycenaean power was almost completely broken. A few decades earlier, a violent assault of an unknown nature had destroyed the major Mycenaean cities of Orchomenos and Thebes. This had been followed a short time later by similar destruction at Mycenae, Tiryns, and Pylos. Whether internecine warfare, Dorian invasion, or peasant revolt, Mycenaean society completely collapsed, the only total obliteration of any contemporary empire. Considering the dispersal of their people and holdings between mainland Greece and Anatolia, the contemporary rise in seaborne raids doesn't seem that much of a stretch. Especially since, as Thucydides remarked, in earlier times the Hellenes and the barbarians of the coast and islands were tempted to turn to piracy under the conduct of their most powerful men. Mycenaean attacks on western islands such as Sicily and Sardinia, may have prompted their native populations to adopt a similar lifestyle. In the decades since Tutelaya's capture of Milawata, Mycenaean influence in Anatolia had become virtually non-existent. As control of the coast had slipped away, some Mycenaeans had sailed back west, while others migrated south and east to seek their fortunes elsewhere. Evidence for the latter appears in contemporary correspondence. Two letters addressed to King Amurapi of Ugarit reference a group of Ahiyawans who were waiting in Lucca for a shipment of copper from Ugarit. One letter is written by the king of Carchemish, very likely Talmi Teshub, 
who's writing to the king of Ugarit and mentions that he's currently hosting the king of Amuru. On the surface, it's typical Hittite correspondence, but it may also hint at something new, a tight-knit network of Syrian rulers gradually taking on greater responsibility for managing regional affairs. Given the pressures on Anatolia, revolts, famine, and coastal raids, it made little sense to rely on help from the capital. As Bryce notes, Supaluliuma's ability to boost the kingdom's defense forces and strengthen its security by raising new levies was now severely limited. And the more troops he recruited to defend his realm, the smaller the labor force left for vitally important food-producing activities. The Catch-22 was unsustainable, and Talmiteshub would have found himself ruling an increasingly autonomous kingdom. The downside, of course, for a kingdom bordering on a hostile Assyria was the lack of potential support by the Hittite army. Carchemish obviously had its own forces and could enlist the aid of regional allies to counter an Assyrian threat. But then, the Assyrians weren't necessarily the only concern. Attuned as he was to the wider region, Talmiteshub may have been getting some fairly unsettling vibes. Rumors, fragments, dubious stories— only slowly given more credence as they came from closer to home. The first solid reports made the threat more clear. Groups of hell-driven seaborne raiders ravaging the Aegean coast. Though Talmiteshub may not have known, among their earliest victims was the city of Walusa, otherwise known as ancient Troy. By the time the people who'd become the Hittites had crossed the Bosporus into Anatolia, the city of Walusa was already a thousand years old. Of course, we have no idea what the city was called for most of that previous life. It began its existence as a small citadel, around 300 feet in diameter, with 20 rectangular houses surrounded by walls, towers, and gateways. Around 2500 BC, the site was taken over by a new population, who doubled its size by building a new lower city. This second iteration, dubbed Troy II, was destroyed by fire in the 23rd century, but was soon rebuilt with a larger fortified citadel. Over the next few centuries, the city was rebuilt two more times each time encompassed by a longer circuit of walls. The sequence culminated in the 18th century BC with the city's most monumental version, commonly referred to as Troy VI. It's this iteration, with its imposing towers and massive sloped cyclopean walls, that most easily evokes the Troy of Homer's Iliad. According to historian Susan Hugh Allen, Troy VI was comparable in size to its Mycenaean counterparts on the Greek mainland, and related to, but smaller than, the central Anatolian palace-temple cities of the Hittites. 
Encircling the lower town are two concentric ditches three meters wide cut into the bedrock, with three or four gateways ten meters wide. These were dug to prevent chariots and siege engines from attacking the vulnerable lower city. The first ditch encircled an area of 200,000 square meters. The second ditch, which lies 80 to 100 meters south of the first, increased the expanse exponentially. According to Allen, the upper city, the Acropolis or Citadel, featured both a megaron, as at Mycenaean Tyrans, and fortification walls 4.8 meters wide and 3.9 meters high. When excavated in the 19th century, the Troy Six stratum was found to contain many vessels of the Mycenaean type. It also had a projected population of 5 to 10,000. This is the city which we'll call Walusa that oversaw the Hittite rise and the foundation of Aegean coastal settlements by the later Mycenaean Greeks. This is also the city that began to appear in Hittite correspondence. Clay tablets recovered from Hattusas record the names of Willusan kings called Pariamu and Alexandu, tantalizingly close to Priam and Alexandros, as well as a Mycenaean lord named Atarsaya, possibly a Hittite take on Atreus. In a mid-13th century B.C. letter, Hattusili III referred to Walusa as being ground zero in a war between Hittites and Greeks. Which is insanely interesting, since the archaeology shows that Troy VI was violently destroyed at right around that time. But the case isn't quite that open and shut. There's little trace of fire or weaponry, and foundation cracks and similar evidence point to a possible earthquake. Whatever the cause, it was soon rebuilt, but with one significant difference. The lower city was largely abandoned, and most of the population moved inside the walls of the fortified citadel. It was this iteration, Troy 7a, that was ruled by a king named Walmu, who helped Tutalaya capture Milawata and drive out the Ahiawans. And it was this same restored city, decades later, whose lookouts would have informed the king of enemy ships offshore. As noted earlier, a substantial contingent of these seaborne raiders could have easily been Mycenaean Greeks. So, if you want to populate the ensuing battle with brave Achilles, noble Hector, and a glittering assortment of gods and heroes, I'll do very little to stop you. This Troy, at least, had a blazing fall that might inspire a poet. In the clinical terms of archaeology, Allen notes the evidence of fire and a subsequent military event in the thick deposit of ash that covered the seventh settlement in the lower town. According to Carbon-14 dating, the catastrophe occurred around 1180 BC, a date remarkably close to the one given by Eratosthenes for the Trojan War. 
As we mentioned, Wallusa's fall was more beginning than end. Once the fires were lit, the people slaughtered, and the city stripped of wealth and slaves, the Aegean raiders turned their eye toward further coastal conquests. For Talmitesha sitting in Syria, it was still a distant fear. But it was one that grew in the years that followed, as the black seam of devastation followed the curve of Anatolia to head toward the Levantine coast.